Lord, I want to thank you that Christ is alive. That Jesus is alive and well. That every man, woman, and child in this place, those joining us online, those gathered throughout this community, have hope extended to us because of Jesus person who came and lived and died in our place, was buried and rose again, who makes us right as we trust in him and Lord his coming again to receive us to himself, that where he is there we may be also. Lord, we praise you for the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. Fill us today, we ask with the power of your Holy Spirit to be filled with the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know we're not the only church in town that is studying your scriptures, that is preaching and believing your gospel, that is praising our hope who is Jesus. And so we pray for all of the churches of this community to be well today. Fill your people with your spirit and the knowledge of your word. And I pray specifically, Lord, for Pastor Malcolm Wilde at Calvary Chapel, Merritt Island, just down the road. Lord, would you fill him with your spirit? Thank you for how you've sustained him all of these years of ministry in this island. And Lord, I pray that you would give him joy today. And may the people who are Calvary Chapel, Merritt Island, be filled with the knowledge of the gospel and the joy of Jesus Christ. And live as people filled with hope because of Christ. Lord, it's in Jesus' name we make our prayer and we look to you as we study your word. And all of God's people said... Amen. Amen. God bless you all. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. As you turn to Mark 7, I was thinking this week of a game that my family really enjoys to play. We like a lot of games and we play them um, not as often as we did when the kids were little, but even routinely now we play family game night. And one of those games is a game called Balderdash. You ever heard of Balderdash? All right, some of you have. I don't have time to explain the concept or the rules of Balderdash, but there's part of the version of the game that we have that has something that involves weird laws. They're called laughable laws, and you're supposed to guess what is the laughable law or try to figure out a way to predict what it is. Let me give you a couple of examples. You ready to play some balderdash this morning? Yeah, you didn't know you were going to have that at church. Here's, here's example number one. In Gary, Indiana, you are forbidden to go to the theater if you, anybody know the answer? Think of, th- th- you don't have to say it out loud, but think of your answer. You got it locked in? Okay, here's the answer. If you have eaten garlic in the last four hours, anybody get that one? I think that's a good, listen, stank breath in your face is a real distraction from whatever show you're watching. Here's one a little closer to home in Orlando, Florida. You're forbidden to tie an elephant to, you guys got this? I mean, it's right in your, your backyard. I don't know how many of you have taken your elephant to Orlando recently, but here's the answer. To tie your elephant to a parking meter, unless the meter's been paid, then it's completely legal to put that in there. Yeah, that's a really good law right there. In San Diego, California, you cannot sleep in your neighbors. Now I'm going to make y'all guess this one out loud, okay? So everybody lock in there and answer it. You cannot sleep in your neighbors. What do you guys, what do you guys think? Yeah, you got it? Okay, here's, here's the answer. You cannot sleep in your neighbor's outhouse 
without their express permission. No, I've got a note from my neighbor, Mr. Officer. I'm allowed to sleep in here. Why I'd want to do that is a mystery to everyone, right? So here's the story. The world has no shortages of weird laws. Listen, as a species, human beings have a long history of trying to hold people accountable for rules that don't always make sense. And the reason I bring that up is because that's the setting for our next passage of study in our study of the book of Mark. As we've been going through the book of Mark, what we have basically and primarily seen is this picture of Jesus going throughout the region of Galilee, showing kindness and compassion and love to lost and broken people. But there's a transition that's taking place, and it's kind of been building from the very beginning of the the book. What we'll see this morning is we will see not so much Jesus and, and his kindness showing love and compassion to people who are hurting and broken, And what we'll see is Jesus himself being confronted by a group of super religious people who were experts at making up crazy, weird rules and then trying to hold other people accountable to them. And that includes Jesus and his disciples. And what we'll find is that Jesus isn't messing around, guys. He ain't playing their game. He cuts through their man-made craziness and gets to the heart of the matter. That's what we're going to see in the midst of these weird, crazy laws. They try to press on Jesus and his followers. So with that in mind, let's walk through our text this morning. I'm just going to read a little bit at a time. And my hope is that we would be prepared for the Lord's Supper by the time that we're done. Look at Mark chapter 7, and we'll pick up where we left off last week, verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, With some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Now, notice this emphasis. Holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many, notice this, other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Stop right there, okay? So the super religious people, the Pharisees, gather around Jesus and they start accusing him of allowing his followers to eat with unwashed hands. And at first glance, This doesn't seem like that unreasonable of a thing to expect. It's not an unreasonable complaint in a sense. I mean, I am not personally able to eat at a table filled with junior high boys because their lack of personal hygiene ruins my culinary experience. So if you're like me, you may think that the Pharisees have a bit of a point, right? But this accusation has nothing to do with personal hygiene. It's, it's about religious tradition. I emphasize that. In just those five verses we read, Mark emphasizes that word tradition three different times. So the Pharisees are not upset about personal hygiene or food safety. They're upset about their religious traditions. You see, the Pharisees were a group of religious experts who made up rules all the time and then said that people had to keep their rules in order to be right with God. That's the root of legalism, law-based religion. And that's what they're trying to confront Jesus and his disciples with here. In verses 2 and 5, the Pharisees say that Christ's followers have hands 
that are defiled. Now, that word defiled means impure or it's unclean. And for religious Jews, they would know that's a reference to the ceremonial law that God had given to his people. He he called for ceremonial purity when he gave laws in the Old Testament that governed the lives and the worship of his people. And, And the reason he did that is because God is holy. Guys, God is holy and pure and sinless. And no sin, no imperfection can exist in the presence of a holy God. And so when God gave laws in the Old Testament to his people, he included various ceremonies that were intended to display the spiritual reality that he's holy and that until we are clean in his sight, we cannot enter his presence. And let me give you just an example from our own lives. Last week, you saw the video if you were here on time, which Many of you aren't ever here on time, but you saw a video if you were here on time to see that last week we were able to baptize nearly 40 people in the ocean. And it was a beautiful, beautiful sight. And here's the reality. That water did not cleanse any of those people from their sin, did it? No, it didn't. It served as a picture of what does cleanse us from our sin, namely the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. That visible display is a reminder that we need cleansing, and it's a display of what brings us cleansing. And in a very similar way, God embedded into the Old Testament laws and ceremonies that were visual reminders of the reality that we as people need to be cleansed from our sin in order to be present in the presence of God. We can't exist in his presence until we're cleansed of our sin. And there were two or three laws, just two or three laws, a couple in Exodus, one in Leviticus, where God called the priests of Israel to wash their hands as part of a ceremony to show we need cleansing to worship God and to be right in his sight. Well, here's what the Pharisees did. They took those two or three laws and and they, they took them and developed literally volumes, like books and books of rules concerning hand washing. They, they had rules about washing your hands and washing your pots and washing your pans. And now I feel like Dr. Seuss because that rhymed really cool. But verses 3 and 4 in our text says they washed everything from cups and bowls and dishes to their couches to be a part of their religious tradition. And I hate to bring it up, but basically what they were doing is they were using a kind of first century contact tracing from covid I'm sorry to go back to that time. What they thought was this. Is they thought if somebody with unclean hands touches this cup, then this cup's unclean. And if this cup that's unclean touches this bowl, this bowl's unclean. And if this bowl touches a dish, it's unclean. And this dish touches a pot and touches a couch and touches. So what they did is they started to make rules about cleansing everything just in case it would be unclean so that it could be clean. And what they were doing is saying the whole world around us is going to make us unclean. And their solution to that problem was to make more and more and more rules about the way you had to wash everything in your life so that you could be clean in the sight of God. And then what they did is they said, listen, if you don't keep our rules about washing stuff, you are a sinner and you are not acceptable to God. You want to know what Jesus has to say about that? Well, let's keep reading. Verse six says this. He said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it's written, 
This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What does Jesus have to say? I'll tell you what he has to say. He says, these religious people are all a bunch of religious hypocrites. He quotes from Isaiah 29, 13 and says that they honor God with their lips, but their hearts were a million miles away. And in verse 7, I hope you notice, he says, because of that, their worship is in vain. That word vain means to bring about no result. It's basically saying it's useless. It's worthless. Just think about what Jesus is saying here. He is looking at the most devout religious people in Israel, maybe the most devout religious people in the history of the world. And he looks them in the eye and says, your worship is worthless. When Jesus talks about worship, he's not just talking about singing songs. He's talking about their entire spiritual life before God. He says, all the things that you are doing to supposedly honor God are vain and useless and bringing about no result. Your worship is worthless. And that's quite a thing to hear in our modern age, right? Where every person's viewpoint is supposed to be treated like it's valid. You know, we live in a pluralistic age where the only thing that's considered wrong is to say that something's wrong, right? But Jesus isn't messing around and he's not playing that game because Jesus is more concerned with their souls than their feelings. So he tells them their entire religious life of worship is completely vain and worship. Talk about trying to win friends and influence people, right? And then we ask the question though, Jesus, if you're that strong in your response about their worthless worship, what made it worthless? He tells us, look at verses eight and nine. Verse eight, he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. What made their worship worthless? They held on to their own ideas and traditions and ways of doing things in a way that caused them to let go of the word of God. They became so concerned about doing things their way that they abandoned doing life God's way. And Jesus says that makes worship worthless. And he digs into a specific example. Look at verse 10. It says, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father and his mother, whatever you, have, you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. Okay, let's just look at those verses. One of the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and mother. And Jesus refers to that Ten Commandment. And in an age, in the first century, when there were no social security benefits, what, what that meant was that to honor mother and father oftentimes meant that adults would have to take care of their aging parents financially once those parents were too old to work and provide for themselves. 
But the Pharisees, in their religious zeal, came up with what they believed to be the perfect loophole for that situation. What they would do is they would designate their possessions as Corbin. Now, Pastor Kerry has a son named Corbin. Is Corbin here this morning? Okay, Corbin, you missed out, I guess, because I don't see you here. Here, listen, Corbin has a great name because the word Corbin means a gift dedicated to God. And there's a whole story why Amy and Carrie said that his name would be Corbin, and it's awesome. It's a great name, and it's a great thing. It's in the Word of God throughout the Old Testament, a gift that's dedicated to God. Here's what happened in the religious world of the Pharisees. They said once something became dedicated to God as Corbin, you couldn't give it away to anyone else because it was a gift to God. However, in their way of doing religious life, they said, you can designate that as Corbin, and then you can use it for yourself until you die. And once you die, it'll be given to the temple. And that little loophole became kind of a tax shelter of sorts for the Pharisees. There were rich, greedy Pharisees who would have aging parents who were in need of their help. But those Pharisees didn't want to give up their Ferrari chariots or let go of their vacation homes on the Jordan Riviera. So what they would do is they would designate their wealth, their things, as Corbin, dedicated to God. And then they would just continue to use them for the rest of their lives while their parents languished in poverty. And what that meant is that the rich, greedy, religious Pharisee would be able to keep all his stuff and have not to, to, to help his parents out. They would never receive a gift from him and it wouldn't help his children out because it wouldn't be a part of their inheritance. It was pure greed and self-centeredness that they used God's word for selfish gain and that had become a tradition among the super-religious Pharisees. Here's what they had done. They completely abandoned what God made clear in his word by hanging on to their ideas and their traditions above God. Word. And that helps us form the first part of our big idea for this morning. We're going to add to the big idea. It'll be a two-phase big idea this morning. Phase one is this, though. Worship is worthless when it holds the ideas of men above the word of God. Listen to me, friend. Worship that is not rooted and grounded in the truth of God's word is not the kind of worship that pleases God or brings blessing to you. It doesn't matter how sincere, how zealous, how committed you are to your version of worship. If we aren't worshiping God by the power of the Holy Spirit in response to the truth of his holy word, our worship is in vain. It accomplishes Nothing. If our religious expressions and our church traditions and our way of doing things are more important than the truth of God's word, our worship is worthless. Guys, it is essential to hear the warning of Christ for us in the day and age in which we are living Mainline Christian denominations are abandoning the truth of God's word at an alarming rate. 
So-called churches and so-called Christians all across our nation are adopting a view of the Bible that treats God's word as though it isn't to be taken literally and can be twisted and distorted and adapted to fit every whim and fad of our culture at large. Biblical teaching about marriage is being abandoned so as not to offend the culture. Biblical teaching about manhood and womanhood is being abandoned in order to conform to society. Biblical teaching about sexuality is being abandoned to accommodate the agenda of a godless sexual revolution. Biblical teachings about personal integrity and ethic and morality and family life and holiness are being abandoned to satisfy the demands of so-called progressive Christians and it makes worship worthless. And it should not take us by surprise, church. God said It would be this way. 2 Timothy 4.3 says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We are living in that time. People no longer want to endure sound teaching. So what do we do? We gather teachers to listen to who will scratch our itching ears and make us comfortable in our sin. And Jesus has a clear word for those who hold the ideas and words of men at a higher level than the word of God. He calls them hypocrites And says their worship is worthless when it isn't rooted in the truth of the holy word of God. Friends, we have a book. God wrote it. It is the holy word of God and it is inerrant in its teaching. It's infallible in its truth. And it is the final authority for the people of God in our lives and in our worship. Let me just say it this way. Whenever we are asking the question, what should we do? The next question we should ask is this. What has God said in his holy word, the Bible? Guys, what God has said is the final authority. And that isn't to say that the Bible will tell you which car to buy or what socks to wear in the morning and there won't be a need for decisions and wisdom. That's not to say that God isn't going to use godly people to be a part of your decision-making process. His word says you should seek godly counsel. It's simply that whenever the Bible plainly says that we should live a certain way or do a certain thing. We must hold what the Bible says at a wholly different level than the thoughts and ideas of men. There is one word from God, and it is the Bible, the Holy Scripture. So the test of our worship isn't that we would show up in a place like this, And raise our hands as we sing. The test of our worship is whether or not we come and go from a place like this. And lay down our lives in submission to God and his holy word. Let me ask you this before we move on. How are you choosing how to live? 
Are you taking your cues from culture or are you taking your commands from God's word? Is there any part of your life today that you know is out of alignment with the word of God? And how is the Lord calling you to step in obedience and holiness by following what he has said in his word? The word of God is the foundation of life and worship for the people of God. But we can't stop here. Because Jesus doesn't stop here. He presses further into the heart of the matter. And I want you to see what he says. It's a crucial, crucial truth. Verse 14. He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his, notice this phrase, not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And every good Baptist says, amen, all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, now notice this phrase, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You see what Jesus is doing here? After his encounter with the Pharisees, where he calls their worship out as being vain and useless and worship, worthless, he calls the people to himself and then he presses the issue all the way to the heart. Essentially what he says is that people are not defiled by what's on their hands. We are defiled by what's in our hearts. The Pharisees thought they could make themselves pure before God from the outside in. And Jesus is saying true purity before God doesn't come from the outside in. It comes from the inside out. External religion and rituals do not make our worship or our lives acceptable to God. We need something else, internal righteousness, not external religion. We need a pure heart. That's what makes our heart, our life, our worship acceptable to God. Our problem, guys, isn't that we need to cleanse our hands. Our problem is that we need Jesus to cleanse our hearts. And that helps us round out the big idea for this morning. Worship is worthless when it holds the ideas of men above the word of God and relies on external rituals above internal righteousness. Guys, the real problem with every man, woman, and child isn't what we do. It's what we are. All of us by nature. We are sinners. And guys, when we hear the idea you should live according to the word of God, it's good that we would say, yes, I want to live according to the word of God. But you need to know something that the Pharisees didn't. And it's this, you can't live according to the word of God. You've already blown it. 
We have all sinned before God. We have all broken his word. When we say, yeah, I want to obey God, there's something that should trigger in our hearts. And and it's this, I can't obey the word of God. I have never been able to obey the word of God. My heart is my problem and my heart is broken. So attempting to worship God by keeping his word will actually be pharisaical religion unless Jesus does something to our hearts. That was the problem with the Pharisees. That's the problem with religion. That's the problem with external rituals. It was not the work of their hands that was the problem. It was the condition of their hearts. And that's why Jesus says in verses 21 and 22, every expression of sin is ultimately a matter of our heart, whether it's something that's secret and hidden like evil thoughts, and covetousness and pride, or something that actively involves other people like theft and murder and adultery, all of that, all sin has the same origin and it's the wickedness of our own hearts. So when we are confronting the issues of sin in our own lives, in our children, or even in our culture, It may be important for us to identify and confront external behaviors, but we cannot be fooled into thinking that the problem with our world, our neighbors, our children, our spouse, or ourselves is our behavior. The problem is our hearts. The root issue is that we have all been infected By the scourge of sin and none of our external religious rituals can do anything about our hearts. Attending church, reading our Bibles, singing songs, giving money, serving in ministry, helping the poor, working hard at our jobs, abstaining from filth on the internet. None of those works will solve the problem that plagues our lives. The issue isn't our hands. It isn't our behavior. It isn't our environment. It isn't our family of origin. It isn't our culture. The issue is our our hearts. And that's why we need Jesus. And we don't just need Jesus. We have him. Because God so loved this world. This broken, sinful world where the hearts of men were wicked. And even their religion was worthless because it was rooted in their own sin. And he sent his son Jesus to come into this life to live the perfect life in the flesh that we've all failed to live. Jesus then died on the cross in our place as a sacrifice to provide forgiveness of our sin. He came to not only live and die, but to rise from the dead so that he could raise us up to a brand new life by putting his spirit, his very life, in us. Listen to the promise of God's word from Ezekiel 36. It says this, I will sprinkle. <clears throat> this is God talking. I will sprinkle clean water on you. He says, you won't cleanse you. Your work won't cleanse you. He says, I will cleanse you and you shall be clean from all your unrighteousness. How much of your uncleanness? All. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you, look at this, a new heart 
And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the promise of God, and that promise is fulfilled for us in Jesus. Guys, we don't need external religion. It will do you no good. You don't need more self-improvement. You don't need more personal effort. You don't need a New Year's resolution. You don't need the work of your own hands. You need Jesus. And you don't just need Him, you have Him. By His grace and by His mercy, by His kindness, Christ came so that those who would repent from their sin and turn to Him in faith would receive the promise that we just read, that God Himself would cleanse us with the washing of the water of the Word and the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, that He will replace our hearts, which is the root of our problems. He will give us new life and new power by His Spirit so that our work won't be empowered by our effort, but would be empowered by His Spirit. He will do the work we need to be acceptable and cleansed in the sight of God. He will make our worship worthwhile, glorifying to God, a blessing to our hearts and lives. Lives, if we will simply turn to Jesus Christ in faith, he will enable you to live out the commands of God's word by his power and not your own. Worship is worthless unless it flows from a heart that's been made new and clean through faith in the powerful life and the precious blood of Jesus Christ and the cleansing water of God's word. So let me ask you this, religious people, gathered in a room for worship on a Sunday morning, is your religious life defined by what you do for Jesus or by what Jesus has done and will do for you? That makes all the difference. That actually brings us to the Lord's Supper. I want to encourage you to take the elements in your hand and just hold them. And I want you to think about this, okay? We are getting ready to observe what could very rightly be called a religious ritual, a tradition that we have of sorts as the people of God for 2,000 years. People like us who follow after Christ have been observing the Lord's Supper. And you need to know, and we need to be clear, this should be anything but an empty religious ritual. This is filled with truth about Jesus. We are going to take the bread into ourselves. We are going to take the juice into ourselves. Why? Because we are going to be reminded for ourselves and we're going to remind one another that the work that we need is a work that only Jesus can do in us. It's the reminder that our religion isn't about what we do for Christ. It's about what Christ does in us. 
Our only hope for glory is Christ in us. And the gospel promises that those who trust in Jesus will have Christ in them. And so before we even take the Lord's Supper, if you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to do that right now. Because the Lord's Supper is for those only who are trusting in Jesus. Right there in your seat, you can begin a new relationship with God Almighty through faith in Jesus. I want to encourage you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus right now, just pray a prayer quietly before the Lord, something like this. God, I confess that I'm a sinner who's already broken your commands. God, I admit that no amount of my work can make me right with God, no matter how religious it is, no matter how good it seems. Say, God, I admit that I need Jesus. And I believe that he lived the life that I failed to live. And I believe that he died the death on the cross. I should have died as a payment for my own sin. Would you say, Father, I, I believe that Jesus rose again from the dead and is alive and will raise me up. I'm trusting him to raise me up to a brand new kind of life. I'm trusting the forgiveness of my sin through Jesus and the power to live through Jesus. If you've never prayed that prayer before, just right now, would you say, Father, thank you for saving me through the work of Jesus Christ. And if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus today, let me be the first to welcome you into the family. If God is your father, you have a brand new life in Christ. At the close of our service, I'll be down front with our other pastors and our prayer partners. We'd love to talk with you about next steps in your journey of following Jesus. But I want to encourage you for the first time to hold that in your hands, that cup and that bread. And let's think about the work of Jesus. Let's depend on the work of Jesus. Let's celebrate the work of Jesus. And if you would, just peel back that first layer. Take the bread and hold it in your hand. Don't allow this to be an empty religious ritual. Let it be filled with meaning. Jesus is the bread of life who meets our every need. And Jesus came from heaven to earth in the form of a man. He took a real body and lived a real life on this earth. And that body that Jesus lived within, as one of us, was broken and beaten, was hung upon the cross. And as Jesus hung on the cross, our sin was placed on Jesus. And God's wrath and punishment for our sin fell on Christ at the cross so that we could be forgiven. And as the bread goes into us, what we'll be reminded of is that it's the work, the life of Christ in us that is our hope for living a life that pleases God. Would you bow your heads in prayer for the bread? Lord, we thank you for Jesus having lived the life we've all failed to live. Thank you that Christ was broken in his body at the cross and that our sin was placed on him and The punishment for sin fell at the cross so it wouldn't have to fall on us as we trust in Christ. And Lord, we pray that as we take this bread into our own bodies, we would be reminded of the gospel promise that Christ will live in us. 
as we trust in him. Thank you for the body of Jesus broken for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take the bread? And then peel back that next layer, exposing the juice. And when Jesus held the cup in his hand on the night that he died, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Well, what that means is that Jesus was making a new agreement between God and men. And the agreement was this, that God would not judge us based on our work. He would judge us based on the work of Jesus if we would trust in him. That's how God can receive us as his children, his sons and daughters. That's how God can forgive us. That's how God can receive us forever in his presence because we're cleansed through the precious blood of Jesus Christ and we have a new covenant, a new agreement God made with us. It's based on Jesus' work and not our own. Forever accepted by God if you're trusting in Christ. Would you bow your head and thank God for the juice? Lord, we praise you for the new covenant, the new agreement, the new way of relating to you. It's not about us having kept all of your rules because all of us have broken them. Thank you that Christ came and kept all the rules, that he lived a perfect life and through his perfect life, as one of us, as our representative, he was able to establish a new covenant, a new agreement. And as we trust in Jesus, Lord, we thank you that you would look at us and accept us, not based on our work, but based on Christ's. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. May we trust in him. Thank you for the blood. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you take the cup with me? Church, I know some of you may want to pray with the pastor just a moment. We will be down front, but I want to invite you to stand right now. And let's lift our voices and engage in worship. Not worthless worship that's empty religious ritual, but worship that's filled with the power of the Holy Spirit as we sing the truth of God's word and trust in the work of Jesus Christ. And I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness, watch and pray, find in me thy
Church, we're forgiven by his blood. That is such a great song to end on this morning that whenever something inside of us, and it would be called flesh, rises up this question of, hey, there's more you need to do, or you didn't do that well enough, or why don't you give that another try because that wasn't good enough, you need to respond by saying, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. So glad that you're here. And before you go out today, there's a couple of things we'll really want to make sure that you pay attention to when you go out in the hallway. Um, in Main Street to the left, um, we have a, a partnering ministry that we're able to, to help some, some kids in Haiti. And they have it so organized there. All you have to do is go by that table. It, you'll get a, a bag that tells you exactly what to do, but it's preparing for Christmas for them. So I know it's August, but it's Christmas is coming, so this is a great opportunity that we can invest in the lives of those kids. So just go grab a bag as you go out and see if that might be something that the Lord wants you to be a part of. I believe they will be collecting all the way until September the 10th, so you have a little bit of time there. And also on the other side of Main Street, you'll see the men's and the women's Bible study banners there. You can go there. There's someone there at that table that can answer your questions about this coming Wednesday night. Where are you going to be this Wednesday at 6 o'clock? I need to announce it again. You're going to be in Main Street, which is that big space out there at 6 o'clock. We'll tell you where to go from there, but we're really excited about the attributes of God of that study that's coming. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we say thank you for all that you're doing. Lord, we say thank you for all that you're going to do. And Lord, we say we trust you inside of this day and this moment. Lord, as we walk out of these doors, Lord, that you would lead and guide us. And simply, Lord, that we would follow. We trust where you're leading. In Jesus' name, amen. All of our pastors and prayer partners are down front. If you're visiting, we sure would love to be able to meet you. So come down front. And also, make sure you go to those tables. Be blessed.